Hello and welcome to Death of the Roman Republic post-series episode 5, Octavia, Pawn to Imperial. As I said in post-series episode 3, I'm doing a short series focusing on the women of the Roman world whose lives are intertwined with the death of the Roman Republic. While Roman society was very patriarchal and women had limited agency, their actions still affected events in the Roman world. First we focused on Servilia, then Fulvia. Today, we focus on Octavia, sister to Octavian, and who is in the middle of his deteriorating relationship to Mark Antony. Like in previous episodes, I've read up on Octavia's life from sources that I trust that corroborate what I already know. That includes Wikipedia, and particularly Wikipedia's citations. At the outset, I will say it is hard to truly understand Octavia like it was hard to understand Servilia and Fulvia, and what Octavia thought of her own extraordinary life is a mystery. I would also like to say that fortunately, via Wikipedia, I found a thesis by Katrina Moore from Clemson University called Octavia Minor and the Transition from Republic to Empire. It was a great resource and made this episode better. I think more than any other woman in this period, Octavia has been described as a pawn used by the men in her life, particularly by her brother, in the dangerous game of Roman politics. On one hand, I feel that describing her as a pawn is reductive and really robs her of agency. Then again, Octavia was constrained by a society that used women as pawns, and she was not as bold as Fulvia as to challenge gender norms. Notably, Octavia saw all of Fulvia's antics covered last episode and would have known the criticisms made against her. So I don't love how she's often described as a pawn, but to respectfully carry that analogy. As any chess player knows, pawns have their purpose and can decide a game. If Octavia was a pawn, she was a very potent and powerful one. Beyond that, Octavia and her brother won the game, and she became not quite a queen, but an untouchable imperial. Unlike Servilia and Fulvia, Octavia would see both the death of the Roman Republic and live through the early Roman Empire. She was upheld as a paragon of feminine Roman virtue as sister to Imperator Caesar Dibifilius Augustus. But before we get to all of that, let's introduce Octavia. Then, we'll pick up where we left off in Fulvia's episode, with a civil war ripening between Mark Antony and Octavian. With all that said, let's start the show. Born around 69 BCE, Octavia Minor was the daughter of a not-terribly-notable politician, Gaius Octavius, and Attia. Her father, Gaius Octavius, had another daughter, Octavia Major, from a previous marriage, but she's not really relevant. To note, female Romans within the same family were given the same name and ranked by birth order. Octavia Major was the elder sister, our Octavia Minor was younger. This is literally the last time I will mention Octavia Major, forget about her. Forget about it! See ya! While her father was not terribly important, Octavia was the great niece to Julius Caesar, a rising politician at the time. It would be about 10 years before her great uncle Caesar would form the first triumvirate with Pompey Magnus and Crassus. She was about six years old when her little brother, also named Gaius Octavius, was born. At some point before 54 BCE, Octavia was married to Gaius Claudius Marcellus. Gaius Claudius Marcellus belonged to the ultra-distinguished Claudii family, the same family Publius Claudius Pulcher belonged to and Fulvia had married into. We don't have an exact date on their marriage, but by my math, Octavia probably would have been in her early teens and Marcellus would have been about 20 years older than her. 54 BCE was a significant year, which we'll get to shortly, but to describe the Roman Republic at this time, 
It was the era of the first triumvirate. Pompey Magnus, Marcus Licinius Crassus, and Octavius' great-uncle Julius Caesar had forged a political alliance that, so long as they worked together, they would generally succeed in getting what they wanted. That said, the first triumvirate's dominance of the Republic was not absolute, and its existence was about to be threatened. Part of what solidified the first triumvirate was marriage, as Pompey Magnus was married to Julius Caesar's only daughter, Julia. Yet in 54 BCE, Julia died in childbirth. Caesar was away in Gaul at this point, yet proposed his great-niece Octavia could divorce her husband Marcellus and marry Pompey Magnus to re-solidify the first triumvirate. However, neither Octavia nor Marcellus wanted this, nor did Pompey. Pompey rejected Caesar's offer, which probably didn't please him. I know you're the big marriage expert. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. Your wife is dead. Pompey would marry another politician's daughter, but the first triumvirate would still hold for a while longer. Octavia's husband Marcellus wasn't an ally to Julius Caesar, and this incident would not have improved relations. Octavius Marcellus was consul in 50 BCE, and his cousin Marcus Marcellus was consul a year previous in 51 BCE. This would be a very contentious period in the Roman Republic, one which I dub the Roman Caesar Crisis. Tensions were increasing between Julius Caesar and the Roman Senate, especially the Optimates like Cato the Younger. The Optimates wanted Caesar to return from his lengthy and lucrative Gallic Wars, and ideally to end his political career by trying him in court for his illegal actions. Obviously, Julius Caesar didn't want this, but instead, he wanted to return to Rome, immediately be re-elected consul, immune from legal prosecution, and then become a governor, again, immune from legal prosecution. At the time, the first triumvirate was very much breaking down with the death of Crassus and Parthia, and Pompey seemed to be less willing to support Caesar. This is explained much more in Chapter 11 of Death of the Roman Republic, Caesar's Homecoming. As a consul during this period, Octavia's husband Marcellus was more on the Optimate side, and wanted Caesar to return to Rome under Optimate conditions where his radical political career would be ended. We know how this story ends. On one side, Caesar, and on the other side, the Optimate Alliance of Cato, Pompey, and several other senators could not reach a compromise. Caesar believed the only way he would ever be able to continue his political career, in spite of a faction wholly set against him, was to start a civil war against them. Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River, leaving his legal territory and declaring war on Rome as he and a single legion rapidly advanced towards the city. There's a good chance I may have committed some light treason. Caesar's invasion in the middle of January caught the Roman Senate by <laughs> and many optimates and neutral politicians who didn't want to be prescribed fled Rome. We're all gonna die! While apparently Marcellus left Rome, he apparently never left Italy and never actually fought Caesar like more committed optimates. During this period, Octavia was likely left control of their household in Rome. Though her husband was nominally against the hostile invader, that hostile invader was her great uncle, and she would likely be safe. As far as who Octavia would have supported more, we don't know. Caesar did not prescribe any Romans, but smartly kept his army very orderly in Italy and Rome as to not turn the population against his cause. Caesar would fight the Optimates and win the Civil War. Marcellus would be given a pardon, and returned to Rome and his wife Octavia. Sometime during 46 BCE, Marcellus's cousin, Marcus Marcellus, 
who had been a more committed enemy to Caesar, had been living in exile for many years. Into exile, I must go. Failed, I have. Octavius Marcellus appealed to Julius Caesar himself, who mercifully gave a pardon to his former enemy, who could no longer meaningfully threaten him. Catrita Moore, in her thesis, Octavia Minor, and the transition from Republic to Empire, posits there's a fair chance that Octavia, who would have been in her 20s, helped set up a meeting between her husband and great-uncle. Marcellus and Caesar had not always had the most friendly relationship, but what is family for if not helping smooth things over? By now, Julius Caesar was dictator for Life of Rome, a title you wouldn't hold for very long, as his life ended on the Ides of March, 44 BCE. In Caesar's will, Octavia's little brother, the teenage Octavius, was to be posthumously adopted by Julius Caesar and inherit the majority of his fortune. The siblings' mother and stepfather advised Octavius to not accept this will, which would indeed come with immense power, but also put a target on the teenager's back immediately after his great-uncle was assassinated. Yet, Octavius accepted Caesar's will. No longer Gaius Octavius, he was Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, or as we've been saying, Octavian. According to Moore, Marcellus was an advisor to his brother-in-law Octavian in his early political career, an introduction and relationship no doubt developed by Octavia. To fast forward and simplify through a lot of history, because I don't think I did a good job of that last episode, with Octavian on the scene now trying to step into Caesar's shoes and claim political power, he was at first at odds with Caesar's lieutenant Mark Antony, but would then become his ally. It should be noted at this point, Antony was married to Fulvia. Octavian, Antony, and Lepidus formed the Second Triumvirate. They would prescribe their enemies and rich Romans in general, and finally battle the assassins Brutus and Cassius. Antony and Octavian would be victorious and mostly push Lepidus out of power, leaving them to rule the Roman world between them. Octavian was to control most of the western half of the Republic, while Antony, more definitively, held the eastern half. For Octavia, it was around this period that she and Marcellus had three children that survived infancy. Two daughters, Claudia Marcella Major and Claudia Marcella Minor, and a son, Marcus Claudius Marcellus. Octavian and Mark Antony's relationship began a sour when Antony's brother Lucius and his wife Fulvia would try to usurp Octavian's power in the Prusine War. This uprising was not approved or supported by Mark Antony, and Octavian handedly defeated them. While Mark Antony was apparently innocent of this conflict, it certainly did not improve relations between himself and Octavian, who were once definite enemies. The Perusine War concluded in 40 BCE. Fulvia would leave Italy for the east to see Mark Antony again. He regarded her coldly, and she died shortly after they met. This is about the point where the previous episode about Fulvia concluded. Tension continued to escalate between Octavian and Antony. Tension the governor of Gaul, a man loyal to Antony, had died. Octavian moved to take control of the Eleven Legions, thereby increasing his own power and decreasing Antony's. As this balance of power between them shifted, tension inevitably escalated further. Then, when Mark Antony returned to Italy from his eastern territory, he was not allowed entry at Brundisium, which almost set off another civil war. Antony had linked up with Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus, a former enemy who had been recently pirating around the Mediterranean. However, Ahenobarbus and Antony met on friendly terms. Unfortunately, Ahenobarbus had not been so friendly to the citizens of Brundisium who refused to let the pirates into their port. Oh, this guy! Do not let him in! Understand me? Just ignore him! Ignore him! 
Antony saw this as Octavian's ploy to keep him out of Italy, landed his men nearby, and then started to besiege the city of Brundisium. Octavian had been in Gaul, stealing away those 11 legions from Antony, and started raising an army to fight Antony, who was now apparently attacking Italy. While many soldiers had positive impressions of Octavian, who paid them very well, many did not want to fight Mark Antony, whom they also had a positive impression of. Octavian still had enough men to blockade Antony at Brundisium. There were a few skirmishes, but ultimately, the soldiers decided the outcome of the battle. They were far too friendly to fight each other, and forced Antony and Octavian to reconcile. This was for the best, as Antony and Octavian would have been foolish to declare civil war on each other. Neither were prepared, and neither had the same power and influence as Caesar had as dictator to control the Republic alone. And heck, that didn't even work out for Caesar. After negotiations, what emerged was the Treaty of Brundisium. Antony and Octavian would more formally split the empire between them. Antony was assigned to invade Parthia, and Octavian was assigned to take Sicily and other islands from Sextus Pompey, the renegade son of Pompey Magnus. Ahenobarbus, who had played a role in this, was not a conspirator in the assassination of Caesar, and thus was given a pardon. And finally, our girl Octavia would play a very important role in this Treaty of Brundisium, and for the remainder of the relationship between Octavian and Antony. As fate would have it, Marcellus, Octavia's husband, died around the same time that Fulvia did in 40 BCE. Octavia was in her late 20s at this point, and had likely spent almost half her life with Marcellus, leaving her widowed with three children would have had a large impact on her life, though her true emotional state isn't recorded. Yet, as a young woman, and sister to one of the most powerful men in the world, she would certainly be expected to marry again. Octavian noticed that Mark Antony was single. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, your wife is dead. <laughs> as well as his sister. Just as the first triumvirate was strengthened with a marriage alliance, the second triumvirate was strengthened with another marriage alliance between Octavia and Mark Antony. While normally, a Roman woman had to wait 10 months before marrying again, so if she was pregnant with her first husband child, the paternity would not be in question by the time she married the next man, an exception was made for the masters of Rome. Thus, Octavia was wed to Mark Antony, who would have been in his early 40s. Considering the marriage from Octavia's perspective, she would have likely have met Mark Antony at least a few times in her life, given how embedded he was in her family. His reputation also preceded him. Uh, genius, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. Antony was her great uncle's number two man for a number of years, and was a frenemy to her brother. Antony was a war hero, who gallantly bested Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi, even if that was more of a slugfest than a complex strategic victory. Antony had been married to the wildcard Fulvia, possibly the most ambitious and despised woman of the late Roman Republic. Antony the Philanderer was known for his affairs, and had already started a relationship with Queen Cleopatra of Egypt. In fact, around the time that they would be wed, Cleopatra would deliver the twins Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene, whose father was Mark Antony. To describe the inherently political aspect of Octavia's marriage to Antony, I'm going to quote from Moore's thesis, Octavia Minor, and the transition from Republic to Empire. It was hoped that Octavia's beauty, intelligence, and dignity would be able to keep Antony's attention and keep the peace between her brother and her husband. This marriage of Octavia and Antony was an important step toward a lasting peace and the end of civil bloodshed which had divided the Roman people. During the celebration of her marriage and the festivities in Rome when Octavian and Antony returned to a peacefully won ovation, Octavia could not have failed to see the hope which the Roman people were placing upon her shoulders. 
She was a living symbol of Concordia and the bearer of peace. One wonders how heavily this responsibility was felt. Through her marriage to Antony, Octavia had been given an important diplomatic mission by her brother Octavian. Though it was masked in the traditional trappings of a marriage, Octavia was essentially accepting a diplomatic assignment with Antony. She would be the conduit through which these men communicated. The question of Octavia's agency looms large over this union. Octavia did not choose this marriage or this diplomatic mission, and she was likely given some instruction from her brother Octavian about what he wanted from Antony. Yet a lack of agency in the choice to marry does not necessarily imply a complete lack of agency from Octavia while married. It should be remembered that even if she was given instruction by her brother, Octavia would be the one interacting with Antony on a personal basis, not able to constantly consult Octavian about what she should be doing or saying. It would be up to Octavia alone to handle her husband on a daily and domestic basis. She would be expected to step into the role of wife and household manager for her new husband, which would include rearing all of their children and arranging for their continuing education, as well as hosting his social engagements. Coins would commemorate their marriage, and their marriage, like Antony's marriage to Fulvia, got off to a good start. Their happy start made common Romans happy, since it appeared there would not be another civil war for a while. I love what I'm seeing. I love what's going on right now. This is what it's all about. Octavia was the second Roman woman, after Fulvia, whose likeness was minted on coins. Octavia traveled with Antony to Athens, Greece, where they had a lovely holiday. Their daughter Antonia Major was born there. Octavia would remain in Greece, as well as traveling around with Antony until 36 BCE. By this point, Octavia had accumulated, arguably too many children, Claudia Marcella Major, Claudia Marcella Minor, Marcus Claudius Marcellus, Antonia Major, and Antony's children with Fulvia, Marcus Antonius Antilius, and Iulius Antonius. Octavia proved herself to be a valuable mediator between Octavian and Antony, whose relationship remained very imperfect. Octavian was losing his naval war with Sextus Pompey, and Antony could benefit from additional troops for his impending invasion of Parthia. However, for their initial negotiations, Antony sailed back to Italy to meet Octavian, but Octavian was late to arrive. Mark Antony, being mildly disrespected, busy running half of an empire, and let's not forget, being a bit of a diva, left. You know, I've realized that I'm probably just perfect, and it's everybody else around me that's got issues. Octavia would be greatly credited at getting the two back together. To again quote more, Antony, this time with his wife, left Athens in early 37, sailing toward Italy. At her own request, the once again pregnant Octavia went ahead of her husband to meet her brother at Tarentum. Ah, yes, the negotiator. She met with Octavian, as well as his friends Agrippa and Messinus. Only after winning over Octavian's friends was she able to discuss the divisive issues lingering between her brother and Antony. Octavian laid out to his sister his issues with her husband. First, her brother felt abandoned by Antony when Octavian was in need of help, and second, he felt betrayed that Antony had sent a freedman to Lepidus, seeking to turn the lesser triumvir against him. Octavia had ready explanations for both grievances, as the first, Messinus had already explained the circumstances surrounding Antony's inability to assist Octavian, and as to the second, she was aware that the freedman had been sent to Lepidus, but it was to arrange a marriage between Antonia Minor and Lepidus' son, not to plot against Octavian. 
To back this claim, Antony offered to send the freedman to Octavia with permission to torture the truth from him. Furthermore, Octavia pleaded with her brother not to make her the most wretched woman, for all eyes were upon her as wife of one imperator and sister of the other. And if the two men fought, one must prevail. Regardless of which one it was, Octavia would become the most miserable, most wretched woman. Which is to say, Octavia believed she would be perceived as the cause of another civil war between her husband and brother, and everyone would hate her for it. Octavia's reasoning and pleas softened her brother's anger, and he agreed to meet. Meeting courtesy of Octavia's diplomacy, Antony would lend his brother-in-law 120 warships to supplement his depleted navy. Octavian promised his sister Octavia 1,000 veteran soldiers that Antony could use, as well as at least two legions. This agreement, made possible by Octavia's intervention, was called the Treaty of Tarentum. Octavia would now return to the east with Antony. She was pregnant with their second daughter, Antonia Minor, and he was going east to fulfill Julius Caesar's dream in an invasion of Parthia. The children would be sent to Italy along with her. However intended this was, for the first time in years, Antony was alone for a significant amount of time, and Cleopatra would meet up with him in Antioch. The stated reason was so that he could confirm Egyptian grain would be supplying his invasion of Parthia. Personally, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene would meet their father. During their time together, Cleopatra would become pregnant by Antony again. The child would be named Ptolemy Philadelphus. Antony launched and ended his grand Parthian invasion in 36 BCE. It was to be his crown jewel of achievement, fulfilling Julius Caesar's dream. This is me. This is how I win. Yet as covered in chapter 17 of Death of the Roman Republic, Antony's Parthian invasion was an utter disaster and a living nightmare. Between a quarter and a third of his 100,000-man army was killed by the Parthians. On the month-long retreats, Antony contemplated suicide, and after Parthia, he may have developed post-traumatic stress disorder. When Antony finally returned to friendly territory, he did not return to the city of Rome. Instead, he would reunite with Cleopatra and head to her capital of Alexandria. He tried to put the past behind him with night after night of feasts and parties. Here's an audio recreation of Mark Antony in Alexandria at this time. Do you think a depressed person could make this? What am I doing? I am blowing Dodge. I'm getting out of town. Whatever you call it, I am running away from my responsibilities. Arm feels good. Look at me! I'm having the time of my life! I made a huge mistake. Pete? Pete, let me tell you something. I haven't begun to peak. But when I do peak, you'll know. Because I'm gonna peak so hard that everybody will feel it. I'm in my prime. I'm not leaving! Do you think a depressed person could make this? Whereas Octavia's husband was met with failure, her brother Octavian had a greater successes against his opponent Sextus Pompey. More so due to the tenacity and genius of Agrippa, Octavian was finally able to cripple Sextus Pompey's rogue navy. Sextus Pompey would flee east and ultimately be killed by one of Antony's generals. 
Focusing on Octavia in 35 BCE, the Roman Senate had become a mostly powerless institution, but used its limited power to appease the triumvirs. Octavia and her sister-in-law, if you do some mental gymnastics you can figure out who that is, were given the legal power to control their own finances, whereas normally their fathers or husbands would be in control of them. However, Octavia's father was long dead, and Antony had already been away for several years, so Octavia had likely had de facto financial independence for a while. Additionally, Octavia and her sister-in-law were made sacrosanct like Roman tribunes, meaning it would be a religious and state offense to harm or even insult them. This was the first time this was offered to women, certainly elevating the triumvirs' wives in Roman society, who were susceptible to insult by association with their tyrant husbands. Additionally, statues of Octavia were allowed to be built. Only one other woman had been given that honor, Cornelia, mother of the Gracchi. In 35 BCE, Octavia would be sailing towards Athens to meet her husband. Octavia was sailing with money, supplies, and pack animals to replenish her husband's resources, as well as 70 of the 120 warships that Antony had lent Octavian. However, Octavia did not bring, nor did Octavian ever send, those two legions and 1,000 veteran soldiers he had promised Antony in the Treaty of Tarentum. At the time and today, people saw this as a dirty ploy by Octavian. Octavian was going to make Antony I'm an The polite thing for Antony to do was obviously receive his wife and the gifts. However, if he did so, Octavian would then say their debt from the Treaty of Tarentum was fulfilled and would never send Antony those additional soldiers. And if Antony didn't accept Octavia... That's a surprise tool that can help us later. Ultimately, and possibly with some urging from Cleopatra, when Octavia arrived in Athens, she was not greeted by her husband, but with instructions from him, which was to remain in Athens. Octavia wrote back to him to see if he actually wanted the resources she brought him. Antony accepted Octavia's additional resources, but never met her. He wrote to his wife to return to Rome, and she did in 34 BCE. Moore states, in her thesis, it is likely Octavia was operating with a bit of her own autonomy here. While she was serving her brother, it's unlikely Octavian coached her in what to do in every scenario, thereby allowing his elder sister to make decisions at her own discretion. After this incident, and ultimately insult, Octavian apparently wanted his sister divorced from Antony. Now look at my really? Oh, so that's how you gonna play it. You know, he just kind of went by and I went, uh-oh, should have never done that. You gonna do this? Okay, fine. That's all I needed. That's all I needed for him to do that, and it, it became personal with me. However, Octavia declined this. She apparently did not want a civil war started over her and may have hoped for reconciliation in the future. She continued to dutifully run Antony's household and raise their large family in Rome while her husband was conspicuously absent. Relations between Octavian and Antony further deteriorated. Whereas Antony's military reputation had been declining, Octavian's was rising. Additionally, as Antony's public relationship with Cleopatra continued to develop, he made himself more vulnerable to Octavian's propaganda. Speeding through the escalation to the Battle of Actium, Mark Antony had rejected the beautiful, intelligent Roman Octavia in favor of the foreign Queen Cleopatra with whom he had children. Antony nominally gave Cleopatra and their royal children Roman land in the donations of Alexandria. And in Antony's will that Octavian illegally seized, Antony wrote that he wanted to be buried not in Rome, but in Egypt with Cleopatra. As Octavian's propaganda went, 
Antony had the perfect Roman wife, but was enthralled with the foreign queen. Cleopatra had seduced and turned Antony against his Roman roots, and if it came to war, Antony would try to turn the Roman Republic into Egypt's kingdom. Yet Antony never left Cleopatra and bit back at Octavian. <laughs> yes, it's me! And you guys are angry about it. Oh my god, I make y'all feel that. <laughs> well, this will not take long. Well, I just wanted to pop up here and show y'all how I'm doing. I'm doing great. I'm looking great. I'm feeling great, you know. <laughs> I'm over here very booked and busy. <laughs> wow. But anyway, um, I just want to let y'all know I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> So I just want to say, hey, <laughs> and that I'm here to stay, and you're going to be mad every day. <laughs> Success. While Antony could fire back insults and propaganda against Octavian, who was also quite the imperfect ruler, unfortunately for Antony, more Romans supported Octavian, who was actually in Rome and had for several years been succeeding in improving life in Rome. Through this continued mudslinging and propaganda war, in 32 BCE, Antony would formally divorce Octavia and send men to throw her out of his house. Plutarch describes that Octavia dutifully left, yet cried, because she would be considered one of the reasons for war. Octavia still took and raised Antony's children, except Antilius, who was with his father. As more notes, and as you probably guessed, we really don't know what was happening in Octavia's head at this point. Hindsight tells us things were never going to work out, although Octavian's best man speech seems to indicate he had some concerns. I wish you guys the world. I hope you find happiness together. Um, I'd say there's less than a 3% chance that she feels good about this. Uh, at the five-year mark, I'd say it's probably going to start to crumble and it's all over by seven, and that's an optimistic estimation. If you lose her, it'll be the best thing she's ever done and the stupidest thing you've ever done. You're a coward. I hate you. But at the outset... Octavia's relationship with Antony had been very successful, and she was a legitimate mediator between her brother and husband. Now things could no longer be mediated. Of course, Octavian and Antony's war of words became a war of... war? Blah, 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 blah. All of that chit-chat's gonna get you hurt. While this is all covered in greater depth than chapters 18 and 19 of Death of the Roman Republic, we know how this story ends. Octavian and Agrippa decisively bested Antony and Cleopatra's navy at Actium. Antony, in fact, fled the battle early with Cleopatra back to Alexandria. Octavian would take his sweet time finally confronting them in Alexandria. Antony would commit suicide after he thought Cleopatra had died. Cleopatra briefly tried to negotiate with Octavian, but would also commit suicide. The final civil war of the Roman Republic was over, and the great threat that Octavian had ginned up that was Cleopatra and Antony was vanquished. Octavian had no more rivals and would become the princeps, first citizen of the Roman Republic, granted extraordinary powers to help guide it. Yet in reality, the Roman Republic was dead, and Octavian was named Augustus, the first Roman emperor. The twice-widowed Octavia was no longer the daughter of a minor politician, nor wife of a consul, nor the wife of a triumvir, but sister to the Roman Emperor. As we move out of the Roman Republic and into the Roman Empire, we still don't know that much about Octavia. 
Again, most of her inner thoughts are really, really lost to us, but Octavia still had an important role to play in her brother's empire. Augustus wanted to portray that he had a perfect family, and his sister was very much a part of that perfect family. Octavia was a very public figure and much admired for her Roman beauty, virtue, and sense of duty. She had dutifully wanted to keep peace between Octavian and Antony, though was unable to stop the weak-willed Antony from Cleopatra's seduction and machinations. But for her virtue, Octavia was what a Roman woman should aspire to be. Additionally, she was a sponsor of the architect Vitruvius, and the Stoic philosopher Athenodorus of Tarsus dedicated a book to her. Octavia was in her late 30s by this point and never remarried. Moore speculates in her thesis that had Augustus married his sister to another politician, that politician would possibly get a dangerous amount of influence in the new Roman Empire and possibly become a new rival for Augustus to contend with. Octavia continued to raise quite a brood. Octavia had Claudia Marcella Major, Claudia Marcella Minor, and Marcus Claudius Marcellus from her first husband. She had Antonia Major and Antonia Minor by Antony. She had taken Antony's surviving son Iulius, who at this point was the eldest of them all at only 15 years old. Also, she apparently raised Mark Antony and Cleopatra's children? Octavian had triumphantly captured Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and Ptolemy Philadelphus, and marched them through the streets of Rome in chains. Afterwards, he gave them to Octavia to take care of. Alexander and Ptolemy aren't mentioned much in history, implying they died in childhood. So speaking of Octavia's children, let's talk about how they ended up in the marriage department. While it is interesting and has large implications for the Julio-Claudian dynasty, as a fair warning, it's a bit complicated and at times a bit interconnected and slightly incestuous, but I think it's worth bringing up. I recommend finding a family tree of the Julio-Claudian dynasty if you're feeling lost and or clicking through the Wikipedia links of Octavia's children. The definitely surviving Cleopatra Selene would be married to Augustus's friend King Juba II of Numidia. They went on to have a successful relationship. Antonia Minor would marry Augustus's stepson, Drusus. Drusus would tragically die early, but not before fathering the famous Germanicus. Germanicus's son Caligula would be Rome's infamous third emperor and would be the first emperor to be assassinated. His uncle, and Antonia Minor and Drusus's second son, Claudius, would be Rome's much better fourth emperor. Antonia Major was married to the less famous Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. They would be the grandparents of Emperor Nero, the last Julio-Claudian emperor. Octavia's daughter Claudia Marcella Minor was married a number of times throughout her life, whereas Claudia Marcella Major was married to Augustus's right-hand man, Agrippa. Marrying Agrippa to his eldest niece showed just how much esteem Augustus had for his friend, though they would later be divorced so Agrippa could marry Augustus's own daughter, Julia. Claudia Marcella Major would then be married to Iulius Antonius, Mark Antony, and Fulvius' youngest son. Iulius met a tragic end, having a not-so-secret affair with Augustus's daughter Julia. At this time, Julia was married to Augustus's stepson Tiberius, and when their... was made known, Julia was exiled, and Iulius was apparently charged with treason and sentenced to death, but he committed suicide. While that may have been a bit confusing, all these children connected to Octavia and thereby Emperor Augustus were useful pawns in solidifying his alliances and attempting to forge a successful and united imperial family. 
Possibly both Octavia and Augustus's greatest pride was her only son, Marcus Claudius Marcellus. Marcellus would have been a teenager when his uncle became Rome's first emperor. While Augustus had a daughter, Julia, and stepsons Tiberius and Drusus, his nephew Marcellus was his closest male relation with his own blood. He had an accelerated political career, like all of Augustus's male relations, but seemed to be favored to one day rule as Augustus did. Marcellus was married to his cousin, Augustus's daughter Julia, becoming Augustus's son-in-law. Yet in 23 BCE, Marcellus died during a pandemic that was sweeping through Rome. He was around 19 or 20 years old. It was after he passed that Julia was widowed and then married Agrippa. Losing her only son was a blow to Octavia, who would have been in her mid-40s. Marcellus would be the first member of the imperial family laid to rest in the mausoleum of Augustus. Alas, that these evil days should be mine. The young perish and the old linger. No parents should have to bury their child. strong in life. His spirit will find its way to the halls of your fathers. Marcellus would be immortalized in Virgil's The Aeneid, which was written during Augustus's early reign. In the story, the hero Aeneas visited the underworld and would see great Romans of the future. He saw Marcellus, a youth of surpassing beauty, Yet the dark shadow of death was upon him. He was a bright youth that was destined to be taken early from the world. Octavia would construct a library in her late son's honor, and Augustus would name the Theater of Marcellus for him. The Theater of Marcellus still stands today, in honor of Marcus Claudius Marcellus. Octavia grieved very much and very publicly for her son, and after Marcellus's death, Octavia was less active in the Roman public eye. Nonetheless, she was still a model for what a Roman woman should be. She had been a dutiful wife and continued to be a dutiful mother and a matron of Rome's leading family. Octavia would die in 11 BCE in her mid to late 50s from natural causes. There were few criticisms that would ever be made of her, one of which was that she was too loyal to the undeserving Mark Antony. The other was what some characterized as excessive grief over the death of her son Marcellus. But I don't really fault her for that personally. Her younger brother Augustus was in his early 50s and would rule the Roman Empire for many years without his sister by his side. Augustus apparently encouraged the Senate to name Octavia a Roman goddess, but then declined that honor for his sister when it was offered. He would, however, construct the Gate of Octavia and the Portico of Octavia in her honor. The portico still stands today in Rome. Her son-in-laws would have carried her into the mausoleum of Augustus, where she would rest with her beloved son, Marcellus. Augustus would join them 25 years later. In total, Octavia had lived a life unlike any other Roman woman. Like all Roman women, she was used as a pawn by her male relations, yet still had a bit more agency than most other aristocratic women. She had a role to play in negotiations between her brother and husband, the two most important men in the Roman Republic at this period, and Roman history could have turned out very differently without Octavia's delicate interventions. 
Throughout her life, Octavia was a valuable companion and ally to her brother and always upheld a reputation as a model Roman woman, a reputation that increased in profile as her brother's power increased. And even if we don't know as much about her as we do about her brother and second husband, Octavia is still a figure very much worth remembering in the death of the Roman Republic. While I am not a scholar on this period, and my admittedly limited research, I never came across this line of thought, so I'm going to make it. And Octavian's ultimate ascension to becoming Rome's first emperor, besides Agrippa, I posit that Octavia was her brother's most valuable ally. Why would you say something so controversial yet so brave? While Agrippa brought the brawn and won the war against Antony and Cleopatra, Octavia was Augustus' perfect pawn. While she tearfully did not want to be, Octavia's neglect and mistreatment by Mark Antony was one of the many justifications for war. Octavian portrayed his sister as the perfect, beautiful, dutiful Roman wife and contrasted her against the foreign, ambitious, and vile Cleopatra who Antony was losing himself in. With this propaganda, Rome was ready to support Octavian in a war against Cleopatra and Antony. Antony would die, and Octavian would consolidate power. His sister's mistreatment was a useful pretext in the war that made him the first Roman emperor. Once more, and as I will say for this whole mini-series, I wish we knew more about Octavia, particularly what she thought of her own life. Uh, I am uh, super interested in about how she felt about the passing of her husband Marcellus, their son Marcellus, and even Mark Antony, when they once seemed to be so in love. How did she feel about being a matron of Roman virtue? Was she truly so virtuous and devoted as she seemed? Or did she long for a different kind of life away from the public eye? How did she feel that her brother used her throughout her life as a pawn? And yeah, she had some agency in that, but I don't know. What were her thoughts there? She was a pretext for the war that happened that made them the imperial family. I mean, how did she feel about that? I would honestly go far as to say, and I will try to keep this short, Octavia it would be a great character to just write creative fiction about. There's so many different perspectives that you could take with her. There's a perspective of Octavia that was always in love with Antony and mourned him tragically but couldn't do so publicly because he became the enemy. Maybe um, she turned on him and hated his guts and those tears about not wanting to start a war were crocodile tears, but she wanted to see him taken down. And everything in between that, there's a lot that you could do with her character. Although I'm not gonna lie, I don't like her character and what they did with her in HBO Rome that much. I won't go Despite its tragedies, Compared to most other Roman women, and especially Servilia and Fulvia, Octavia led a charmed life, playing a role in the death of the Roman Republic and living to see the early stages of the Roman Empire, even making an impact on it after her death. Of the five Julio-Claudian emperors, the last three were her and Mark Antony's direct descendants. They were the great-grandparents of Emperor Caligula, grandparents to Emperor Claudius, and great-grandparents to Emperor Nero. And yes, it is objectively hilarious that Antony was tangentially responsible for the dissolution of Augustus's dynasty. This is me. This is how I went. Once more, I really must thank Katrina Moore, whose thesis, Octavia Minor, and the transition from Republic to Empire, made this episode a lot richer. She goes into further depth and even contrasts Octavia with Fulvia and Cleopatra. I wish Moore the best of luck in all her pursuits. On the next post-series episode, we will be examining Octavia's sister-in-law, 
who may have poisoned Marcella so that her children could be advanced by Augustus. That definitely didn't happen. Livia, wife of Augustus, and thereby Rome's first empress. Follow the show on Twitter at D-O-T-R-R-Pod for funny stuff and to connect with the show, I guess, and show updates. Hope to have Livia's episode out in April, but things will be confirmed or denied on Twitter. Hope you have a lovely rest of your day. With all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Oh.